0: This episode of the Impact Makers podcast is sponsored by Workplace from Meta. Everybody's talking about the metaverse these days, but Workplace from Meta is different. I mean, the clue's in the name, right? Workplace is a business communication tool that uses features like instant messaging and video calls to help people share information. Think Facebook before your company. It's part of Meta's vision for the future of work, a future in which your job isn't just something you do, but something you experience a future in which we'll all feel more present, connected, and productive. Start your journey into the future of work at workplace.com forward slash future. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. I'm excited to bring to you a conversation with Dr. Alexander Alonzo, who is the Chief Knowledge Officer for the Society for Human Resource Management. In his role, Alex leads operations for SHRM's research functions, the Knowledge Advisor Service, and the SHRM Certified Professional and Senior Certified Professional certifications. The good news is that you don't have to be an HR leader to get something out of our discussion today. We'll talk about what research shows has changed over the last couple of years in regards to how employees view the workplace and what they're looking for employers to provide them that differs from the past. We'll also discuss Sherm's efforts to define and create a consistent measurement to evaluate return on investment when it comes to human capital and the top skills that all people leaders, not just HR leaders, should focus their development on now to meet the challenges and the opportunities of the workplace of the future. I learned several things new in our discussion today, including what it means to get Netflixed, what the acronym GESHWE means, and how we'll all be using it, and the price that some people are willing to pay for being petty at work, as well as the benefits of learning how to discuss taboo subjects in the workplace. Well, welcome to the podcast today, Alex. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Why don't you start us out with telling us a little bit about who you are and how you ended up to where you are today?
1: Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today, and I, I'm always grateful to be on your podcast, especially given the work that you do to really uh, kind of disrupt the HR, change the world of HR. It's meaningful for me. So you asked a, a little bit about who I am and where, how I got to be where I am, right? And ironically, I think I'm an accidental IO psychologist, is the way I would describe myself. An IO psychologist is an industrial organizational psychologist, and what we study is not people, but rather organizations and how they operate and how well they operate compared to what they should be operating as, right? And ironically, what I started off as is something completely different. So I remember I was in college and I was taking on all sorts of odd jobs just to make ends meet. I was actually married at the time. I was a dad. Uh, so completely not the way you're supposed to plan your life and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I had this beautiful baby girl. We were a young couple. And I got my first job really focusing on what you should not be focusing on. I was a skip tracer. For those people that don't know what a skip tracer is, I was dog, the bounty hunter, minus the big blonde hair, right? <laughs> And so what What I was, was one of those people He, you know, we had a chief skip tracer, Nevada Bob was his name, Bob Garrett. And, and I'll never forget, I was one of his assistants. I was helping him catch people who had skipped bonds. And this was in the early 90s, right after all the domestic violence cases and the bonds associated with that. And I'll never forget, we had this one big case. It was a guy by the name of Richard Shorthouse. And the reason I call him a big case is because he was 6'8" and 375 pounds. And it took, I'll never forget, we actually managed to capture him, but it took six of us to bring him down. And I had my shoulder and my elbow on the back of his neck while we were trying to restrain him. And I'll never forget, I'd been doing this for a year. I thought I was slick. I knew what I was doing. And he turned around, flipped us all over and cold cocked me, broke my nose right then and there. And I'll never forget, I ended up going to the university hospital that same night to get my nose looked at. And I'm sitting in the ER and there's another gentleman there waiting. And he hears me talking about my story. He hears that I I go to Florida International University and turns out he's a faculty member there. And he says, you know, are you any good at math? Are you any good at stats and that kind of stuff? I said, "I, I think I'm pretty good. And he starts talking about, I hear you talking about how you hate people, but are you willing to study organization? And so sure enough, this gentleman recruited me to be part of the graduate program at at FIU in IO psychology. His name is Juan Sanchez, great guy, still to this day we're friends. And I ended up following that career path and taking that career path. Well, lo and behold, I keep running into Juan every seven years or so. And he says, well, I heard about this job here that you, you might be interested in. So I ended up leaving my first role in IO psychology to go end up working at a research think tank in D.C. that supported the U.S. Department of Education, the Department of Defense, and a variety of other government agencies. My first client while there in the private sector was the Society for Human Resource Management. And I was brought on board to look at, at one point, just as a as a project, we had one project work, we had one, to look at why HR education was broken. What's wrong with HR education? And I'll never forget. Put together this provocative report about why it's broken, and Sherm really appreciated it. And and nothing ever came from it except for one thing. I ran into Juan seven years later, and he said, "I heard Sherm is looking for this. Are you interested in that role?" And I was like, "Oh, really?" And I called my good friend Deb Cohen at the time and said, "Hey, can I? Are you? Can I apply for that role? Is that something that would be worthwhile?" And she's like, "Oh my gosh, yes! You were the person I was thinking of when we did this." And sure enough, I ended up at Sherm, and here I am. 12 years later, still trying to find ways to disrupt HR within the, the business of HR.
0: Wow. Well, that certainly wins some awards for uh, <laughs> twists and turns in your career yeah. story. I have a couple questions, though. So it sounds like as a bounty hunter or skip tracer, a nickname is required. So there's Dog the Bounty Hunter. There's Nevada Bob was your boss. What was your nickname?
1: I was called Gordo. That was my <laughs> nickname. Gordo, which is basically a fat guy in Spanish. <laughs>
0: Well, (laughs) so you've not embraced that in your further career. (laughs) No,
1: no. the only difference is I have hair now and a PhD. That's Yeah, PhD. I don't have hair now, I should say.
0: (laughs) So at GERM, your title is now Chief Knowledge Officer. And with Disrupt HR, I granted myself the title of Chief Excitement Officer, which always gets people, you know, they want to ask about the title. I like Chief Knowledge Officer much better. How did that come about?
1: I'll never forget, Johnny C. Taylor Jr., our CEO, came in back in 2018. And one of the things he kind of did for each of us was he asked us to talk about what our roles are. What is it that we do? And over the course of time, what he, and by time, I mean, eight minutes, he's that smart. He said, you know what? You're not really a research guy. You're a guy who changes the knowledge base for an entire industry, an entire world. Why don't we call you the chief knowledge officer? And I said, well, okay, we could do that. Uh, I, I thought to myself, it's kind of quirky. I'm not really a knowledge management guy. And that's what people think of when they think knowledge. But lo and behold, he, he said, no, I want you to be our chief thought leadership guy. But CTLO is just crazy. Nobody does that, right? And so he pushed me to really be better and to focus on how we change the, the knowledge base, not just for the HR profession, but for the world of work. And he said, you're my knowledge guy. So go be a knowledge guy. And that was that.
0: I like that. Well, tell me how you and your team are changing the knowledge base for the world of work.
1: So I think what we really focus on is when I was first at SHRM, our research team was really more of a survey and trends kind of shop. And what we do today is is really focus more on what it is that working Americans think about the workplace and how they the relationship that they have with their employers, right? And we do it more so from an economic data perspective, which is a difference from what we used to do. In large part, what we're trying to focus on is one, to quantify what it is that, in dollars and cents, what it is that human capital brings to the table. Two, we are trying to define return on workforce investment as best possible. And three, we're trying to make it so that HR professionals take on a different, and not just HR professionals, but people managers take on a different perspective when it comes to understanding culture, understanding what marketing oneself as an employer and oneself as a manager does to that culture, and at the same time, focusing primarily on how technology changes the way that we do our jobs. And so that's that's why we've been focused on things that we weren't necessarily focused on, You know, I'd I'd like to say we're not your your grandfather's or your grandmother's SHRM anymore, but I'd also argue we're we're just not interested in boring stuff anymore.
0: Sure. Well, what is something that maybe in 2022, you and your team have published or shared that you found really kind of groundbreaking in terms of the world of work?
1: So one thing that I found particularly interesting this year is between my SHRM Foundation team and the SHRM Labs team, we actually looked at the top 10 innovations from a technology perspective in providing more mental health opportunities beyond the EAP uh, for your workforce. And you know the, uh, the obvious ones were things like focus on Talkspace, focus on better health, those kind of programs and those types of subscriptions. But what we found is there's a whole series of apps and really uh, tech startups out there who are trying to look at this kind of approach in mental health from a variety of different ways. So we have groups like Perks that are really looking at how you build mental health through a consistent appreciation and recognition program all the way through to other kind of tools that are really about how do I build an allyship chatbot, something that actually helps someone think about the way that they're approaching their mental health on a day-to-day basis. But the, the idea here being that we're empowering people to take mental health into their own hands, but we're empowering employers to bring mental health forward as a priority for their workers.
0: Have you and your team, you mentioned earlier, like quantifying the ROI of things, have you and your team been able to quantify any of the benefits of focusing on mental health in the workplace?
1: So we are actually in the process of doing that right now. And and what we've found in particular is your costs, your actual health costs, forget mental health, just your health costs in general, go down significantly. We're talking about 13% per year, if somebody actually focuses on proactively on mental wellness. And so we've seen some big gains in that regard. A lot of what we've learned, though, is really just kind of actually validating what we've seen and heard from doctors over the years. Stress is our biggest disease when it comes to mental health or lack of mental health, right? And if we do things to manage that as effectively as possible and proactively as possible for everyone, not just for people who are showing signs of Flagging mental health, that really speaks to what we can accomplish all the way around.
0: Interesting. You know, I've seen some data recently where, you know, I was talking about employee engagement levels. I've been doing a deep dive in that a lot lately about how obviously we've measured total employee engagement for a while, but there, there's some real significant drop over the last few months in leadership engagement levels that leaders have really begun to, and, and you know, everybody's struggled during the pandemic and, and what's happened through there so we're not we're not saying somebody's more or better but leaders have really begun to feel the effects of all that they've had to do over the last two or three years with the pandemic. Have you seen any of that in your research?
1: So actually we just fielded a poll that came back to us that actually spoke to that very thing but in the in the context of a new phenomenon or a different phenomenon. I'm sure you've heard about quiet quitting. Leaders are much more likely to engage in quiet quitting than their actual workers. And the reason for that is they are showing signs of fatigue without any kind of recognition or remuneration for what they've done to lead others. And so this is actually something that uh, when you think about just trying to source talent, just trying to retain talent, that has really had an impact on leaders And many of those that are in that people manager realm, that middle manager realm, they're starting to show signs of the effect. So what they're doing is they're engaging in quiet quitting. And for those leaders, it means I'm not going to engage in talent acquisition as directly as I used to. It means I'm not going to engage in some of the core responsibilities of my role. I'm I'm opting out of one-on-one meetings. I'm opting out of things that are the basics of, of leadership, like communicating things from top down. I'm just, I'm opting out. And it's because the the, the organization is going to keep running. I'm not going to be you know recognized for the work that I've done to keep the organization running. So it's time for me to do the quiet quitting, right? And they do it at a rate that's much higher than we ever expected, and certainly higher than what we expected from workers. So it's intriguing to see. Interesting,
0: yeah. Certainly, we you can't open up the internet without reading about something about quiet quitting lately. So it's interesting to hear that it really is affecting leaders in terms of leaders of leaders then how can we help our mid-level leaders or our people who are really struggling kind of with what they've been through and do you have any suggestions on what leaders can do to help their teams
1: so you know it's interesting because i think back to leaders of leaders and and the role's that one i think it's a hilarious name when you think about it because it makes me say lol right <laughs> but the funny thing that i've learned is there are three things that a leader of a leader can do right one is focus primarily on understanding what the day-to-day work is for that individual and what are the stress points for that individual. Where is it that individual particularly struggles or feels like they're not as effective as they could be? And the only way you do that is by actually engaging in conversation with those individuals. The other thing that I find is particularly critical is oftentimes Leaders of leaders, we fall short in assuming that those leaders are already on their career path and they're on their growth trajectory, their developmental trajectory. And so we don't need to invest in that as much as others. Well, in reality, those are the people who might be stuck in That land, you know, that no man's land or that no person land where it's not clear where they're going next, right? They may be in management, but they don't know what their next step is in executive leadership or moving forward. So having conversations about development actually does help these people really kind of feel invested in some way. And what's intriguing is it's about what you see as their developmental path, as opposed to what they see as their developmental path, because oftentimes the two things are not correlated and they should be. And in in many cases where I've had these conversations with my my leaders is I say, so where do you see yourself going? And they don't ever see themselves going outside or taking a different path towards leadership, a bigger leadership role. They only see themselves as, you know, well, I'm not going to replace you or, I'm, you know, I don't see a promotion happening in this case. Well, why do you have to replace me? Why can't we go around or why can't we find other roles where you make sense? Or more importantly, why do you assume I'm always going to be here? It may not be that I'm always going to be here. Then the third thing that I find is absolutely critical is, and this is going to sound hilarious, but hot food.
0: I will (laughs) tell you,
1: hot food makes a huge difference. And I've learned this.
0: Wait a minute. Is this anecdotal or research-based information?
1: (laughs) Research happens everywhere, right? I I, I like to tell people even my favorite TV show of all time is really about research. And everybody knows Family Feud, the survey says, right? (laughs) It is about research. So no, I'll tell you, hot food makes a difference. I have found that taking somebody out to a meal or making it so that they can, you treat them to a meal or some every once in a while, you just surprise them with their favorite kind of meal. It makes people feel like the organization is invested and it isn't a box lunch. The worst thing I see over and over again is a box lunch because it just it isn't something that represents me actually caring. It's just me buying a box for you.
0: I am going to take that little tidbit of information and apply it somehow in the future. (laughs) I, I recommend it. I think you, I also heard you mention earlier about the leaders and kind of the fatigue that they're experiencing and the fact that they've not been recognized for that, you know, what, what their experience has been like, you know, they're reading, they're being coached, they're, really working hopefully to make sure that their teams know that they appreciate the effort that they've put in and what they've been through. And they're asking how you're doing and what can I do to support you? And often they're not getting that from their leadership. So that's, I think, an important point as well, right?
1: Yeah, I would almost drive that home. In fact, what ends up happening inadvertently when we become leaders is we focus so heavily on sustaining the business model that we don't actually focus on sustaining the employee experience, right? And we forget that leaders themselves are employees, so we've got to do something to treat them like employees from time to time.
0: Yeah, I always have some good stories about my own kind of onboarding experiences and all of my jobs that I've had in the corporate world where in each and every one, you know, I'm coming in as the human resources leader who's supposed to be leading that, improving it, et cetera, making sure we have a good candidate employee experience. And mine have all been terrible. (laughs) Because, you know, you show up, nobody gave you a computer, they don't have anything prepared for you. And one job I showed up, you know, VP of HR job, the CEO asked me to come in the day before on a Sunday to get the keys and to meet, you know, the security guard, and he didn't show up. He he overslept. So I had to meet my predecessor. It was a confidential search. Had to meet my predecessor without a buffer. He was not excited about giving me the keys.
1: How safe was that too, right? Forget about psychologically safe. It just wasn't safe.
0: We sometimes forget that leaders need good experiences too.
1: This is a different role, but I was brought in to lead a team of about 19 researchers. And I'll never forget, we were doing an interview panel and the job was pretty much mine, right? But I I knew I was going to have an interview panel with the staff just to, you know, get their perspective on what was going on. And I'm sitting there in front of nine panelists, all of whom were going to be my direct reports. And the recruiter walks in and she's, already, she's late. She didn't go get me downstairs, right? So... She brought me, somebody else brought me up and the recruiter then shows up late. And in front of the entire group, she says, hey, uh, when you get a chance, can you provide me with new references or new phone numbers? Because all the ones you provided have not checked out. (laughs) And then walks away. I was like, well, (laughs) maybe I would have had that conversation a little differently and not in front of everybody. And oh, by the way, they do check out. You just need to try harder. But... (laughs)
0: Yeah. Day one agenda, meet yeah. with recruiters. <laughs> right. Unbelievable. So, yeah. anyway, well, yeah. you mentioned that what you do at SHRM is that you're, you're looking at how working Americans think about the workplace. I was intrigued by that statement. Maybe can you tell me, obviously, we've seen a lot about what's changed for us all over the last uh, couple of years, but what has really changed in terms of how workers are viewing the workplace over the last couple of years?
1: So I'll tell you that the first thing that, that we're seeing is that workers view their careers a little differently, right? I remember that the, we used to approach things from the world of job security. If I was to think about my parents' generation and I was to think about, you know, the, the baby boomers and, and the traditionalists, what they looked at is you need to find a place where you can work and hopefully you'll get to work there your entire life. And while that's nice, and in some cases it's great because you will continue to grow and it speaks to the culture you're dealing with. What is clear is that most people don't think that way anymore. And I, I, you know, I think about my, my daughters. I, I was talking to my, my 15 year old and she's already planning to have three or four careers and shift companies and roles 17 different times. And, you know, she wants to be an entrepreneur. Her ultimate goal is to work for herself, not to work for anybody else. She wants to do something that's meaningful. And I don't know that I could ever have brought that kind of perspective to the workplace myself, right? While I wasn't a baby boomer, and I wasn't afraid of career change. My goal was always to make as much money as possible as a Gen Xer and to have status, right? That's what I cared about. And maybe to have a you know a nice pink you know, pastel shirt like Don Johnson, uh, <laughs> Miami Vice, right? But, and, and I say that only because I grew up in Miami, so it was everybody's dream. So that's, that's the first shift, right? The second shift is what it means to have an employer in your life as an employee. And I think if we were to look at this 10, 20 years ago, having an employer was really about having somebody who was providing you with the bare minimum in terms of quality of life, providing you with what you needed to ensure that you could basically ensure that you were engaged in the kind of purchasing power you needed, that you could achieve the quality of life you needed from an economic perspective. Today, what I see is people are looking at employers providing them two things. One is they provide me with the culture I need to be creative, successful, and in some way, shape, or form, an entrepreneurial spirit. And that is something that is wildly different than what we were before. The other thing is, in the absence of a government agency that really is my steward, that fosters my care and my wellness, employers are becoming that. And so when I go to my employers and I think about what I as a working American want, I want a great culture that I can work in that's going to help me do what I want to do and benefit along the way as well as somebody who's going to ensure that I am taken care of, that my family's taken care of, and that I am resourced as best possible to make sure that I don't have to worry about wellness issues along the way.
0: That's really a shift, I think, for for leaders. Not that it's not a good shift, because certainly throughout my career as a people leader in the corporate space, while we certainly provided benefits, et cetera, there really was this little not so imaginary wall between our job is to take care of you in the workplace. And we don't get involved in your life outside of work. But based off what you're saying is, are the American workers or workers in general saying, I want my employer to have some impact on my life outside of work?
1: I think it's it's almost a given. In fact, what I teach. So I do a lot of work with executives. I, I say, and this is beyond just CHROs. I'm talking about all kinds of C-suite leaders. Everyone knows what EBITDA means, right? It's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization, all those things, right? What I teach people to think about as well, though, is a term called Geshwi.
0: Oh my goodness! <laughs> Spell that one for us.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Geshwi is actually G E S H W I, right? And it's how much growth do we create for individuals in our culture? E is how much entrepreneurship do we sponsor in our, from our individuals? S is what kind of satisfaction and sustainability do we have in the climate that we've created at our organization? And H is, sadly, health, right? How much health do we foster amongst our workforce? And all of that is when considered against workforce investment, right? So how much of these are we doing such that we're taking our workforce investment and actually actually creating value, right? And so GESH is the ratio of that. What we look to do is actually to... So this is something that we've... A program that we have in Sherm India and some of the partners that we have out there where we're trying to quantify what we looks like. The idea being that the bigger the number, the better off that your organization is going to be. And it's basically the HR answer or the people management answer to EBITDA. If you have both of those, how much do they, they really work? The interesting thing is they correlate very well. So the more we you have, the more EBITDA you're likely to have, which is a good sign, right?
0: Well, I'm fascinated. First of all, we've got to get we to take off. We need to buy some billboards yeah. or T-shirts or something.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's a horrible name, but I couldn't find anything better.
0: <laughs> so it sounds like are you kind of in the early stages of of getting the ability to quantify it? How much longer before we're kind of able to roll this out to the rest of the world?
1: So we'll actually have this in January. January will be when we make this really the tangible kind of tool that people can use to quantify for themselves. And it's a relatively simple formula, but I'm happy to share it at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's fascinating. I we... Okay, I'm going to look for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know where to find me no matter what.
0: So. Sure. Now, you mentioned, you know, the, the the new ways the worker is looking at the workplace is you know, a place where I'm not looking at a long-term career necessarily. I'm more about growth and entrepreneurial thinking, not necessarily that everybody wants to go out and start their own business. And also how the employer kind of helps me to take care of myself in life. I get that. But for leaders that have long been, and I believe still are many of them focused on certainly many things, but one of them being retention. You know, their their mindset is still, I want to hire someone and I want to keep them forever. Number one, because it makes my job easier, that there's you know not potentially turnover on my team. I don't lose knowledge, et cetera obviously there there are some reasons where you want to encourage turnover. How do we help shift mindsets of leaders now to match with what the workforce wants? I mean, there are many, many ways that what the workforce is wanting today is bumping up against leadership today. But that's one that I see where leaders are like, we want to hire you and we want you to stay. And employees are like, that's not going to happen. How do we help those two come together?
1: So there's two types of things that I advise leaders. And the first thing is, To align yourself with what the world of work and workers are looking for, you got to let go of some of your vestiges of the past, right? So I kind of say, really stop having bullshit conversations. Mm -hmm. Pardon my French, but it's the truth, right? And so when I hear people talking about, you know, should we be back in the office or not? Just pick a, a stand, take a stand and choose what you want. Don't have the back and forth with your workers. That's the stuff that really lets workers know you're not equipped to be the right kind of leader. The other thing I, I kind of argue is have the conversations that really are meaningful to those workers. And so when I say specifically have those conversations, what I'm talking about is have the kind of conversations that they say are valuable. to them. That means salary. That means things about career growth. That means things about entrepreneurial volunteerism, right? Sit down and have those kind of conversations with them, whether it's that you determine that you want them or don't want them. And then just go from there. And then finally, do not be afraid to lose people, right? I, I know leaders want to retain. I know that the, the the frame of mind is that we want to retain. And I'm certainly not a supporter of rank and yank. That's not what I'm arguing for. But what I would say is whether we like it or not, we're going to end up losing people. We're going to go to a model where there is endless talent acquisition, right? It's a recurring nonstop kind of function and process within our organizations. So let's just be ready for it. It, to me it's I, I hate people who get caught up in this notion of you know let's have a bullshit conversation around something that it's just easy and let's take a stance and then the other side th- type of conversation that i always tell people to avoid is the one where you're going to get into netflix right you're
0: gonna what, get, I mean, what? <laughs> netflix netflix <laughs> and, what I,
1: and what i mean about that is don't have the kind of conversations and the culture where people are going to turn around and eventually your your company is going to appear on Netflix in some documentary series where they're talking about how horrible you were, right? And so uh, the only way to do that is to have conversations with people about the things that they care about. Don't have those conversations about, you know, silly things that are just distractions. That's the key to, to this.
0: Well, now you've added at least two things to my lexicon, Geshui and getting Netflix. I'm That's, right. Remember that. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Well, along those lines to to and not necessarily push back a little, but I agree. Turnover is acceptable in the sense that our job, I believe, as leaders, as employers, is to bring someone in with the skills and talent that we need or or the ability to develop into that to help them to grow. And to your point earlier, not everyone's going to grow up through the chain and there may not also be opportunities for them to move laterally or, you know, creatively through the organization in our organization. So they will need to go elsewhere to learn. So I think that's healthy thinking. But there's certainly some high potential employees or top talent that we want to keep from your kind of like extensive research and knowledge database of what you have learned over the years. How do you recommend employers identify who those top talent individuals are and focus on them so that they can try to keep them or should they?
1: So they should. I I think that's perfectly reasonable. But I, what I advise in many cases and people don't do is you, you think your high potential is your high potential, until you actually assess them and realize, well, maybe they're just where they should be, right? They're not ever going to be that next layer up. So what I advise is consistent assessment of people in terms of the skills that they bring, the types of uh, personality attributes that they bring, the types of information that will make them the best candidates for additional kind of opportunity and and responsibility, right? And to me, that does two things. One, it keeps that person engaged and showing them or signaling to them that they are in fact someone you consider a high potential person and that they might contribute to the future of the organization in a broader way. The other thing that it does though, is it it provides you with the data you need on a recurring basis To say, okay, this person is still high potential, may not be high potential anymore, is high potential for a different skill set and matrix that we need in the organization as opposed to what we don't need or we might not need in the near future, right? And so those are the kinds of things that you do really well. And, And the best organizations do that on a recurring basis. They don't stop with their assessment of top talent. The other thing that I find particularly interesting, though, is I encourage people not to get wedded to the performance review. And I say that in particular because what we end up doing is trying to validate our perspectives on high potential employees and high potential workers based upon the performance that someone brings to the table. But in reality, potential and performance are not always the same thing. And they're not always correlated, right? Somebody may be very high potential, but they're not necessarily the person that you'd think of as a best performer right? or the necessarily now uh, somebody who would be a top performer in sales or something like that, right? To me, what I think about is I, I ask myself, what kind of potential is this person bringing? And how do I assess that repeatedly so that I know exactly where they belong? Those are the kinds of things that I would do now. The other thing is all that's going to signal to the person that they're a top performer or not a top performer, but a high potential talent. So at some way, you're going to have to compensate them eventually over and over again, right? And what I find interesting is when you look at the data, you're talking about somewhere between 6 to 11% more in terms of salary when you're talking about high potential employees. So you're going to have to give them bumps repeatedly.
0: Interesting. I like data-driven decisions. Do you have a favorite way to assess leadership potential?
1: So my favorite way to assess leadership potential is actually twofold. One is to give somebody a leaderless group discussion, right? And invite them into this discussion and see whether or not eventually they become the person who is swaying the conversation. Can they influence others? The other thing that I always recommend is a task of just general demeanor and or treatment of others. And so what I like to do, there's a classic one, which is make somebody wait out in the hall prior to a, a, an interview or something like that and see how they, they treat the, the receptionist or see how they treat somebody who they think is not at the same level as them. And if they treat them poorly, you know that they're not your leader. But if they treat them you know, the same way they would treat anybody else, at least you know they're a good human being theoretically, right? So how do people behave when they think they're not being assessed? Sure, the kind of thing I like to do.
0: Yeah, I think it was a couple of years ago, some CEO said that one of his tests was to take people out to lunch and then either not show up or something, have their order delivered wrong, you know, so that chaos was created and see how they treated the wait staff. So, yeah, one data point, I think, in assessing leadership potential, but those are some good ones. Well, as part of your role in SHRM, you're also over the certification kind of arm of, you know, helping. HR leaders in particular, to understand the skills, knowledge and capabilities they need to grow in their careers. And I imagine that's changed over the last few years and maybe as a result of the pandemic or the changes in the workplace. How has that evolved and where do you see it heading? What do HR leaders, people leaders, and I say people leaders, not just people who work in HR, but people who are responsible for other people. What do they need to do or what are some of the top skills that you think they really need to focus on?
1: So, you know, if I could go back, and obviously, I'm I'm one of the co-founders of SHRM certification. If I could go back, what I tell you is interesting is back then, it was very much about the ho-hum kind of things that you would expect with HR, right? It was very much about how do I keep the trains running? How do I keep operations moving? And the thing that we always heard about was, well, I wish that HR professionals were better at coaching leaders, that they were better at doing that kind of work, and they were also better at change management right? The the big extra thing that everybody always required or wanted was change management. The pandemic killed that. And not just the pandemic, but also it really the summer of social justice movements in 2020 killed that, right? And the, the recurring things that we've seen. So what I'll tell you is there's three things I'd say. One is We've seen an absolute rise in this notion of belonging and sense of belonging, how it is that HR plays a role in doing that, both through ESG activities, as well as through activities that are true blue inclusion, everyday activities in in the workplace. The other thing that I think is absolutely critical is seeing what it is that HR professionals do to VUCA situations and how they respond. Bond in VUCA situations. And VUCA is an old military term. I'm sure you've heard it, but it's a you know, something used to describe a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous situation and how you you take advantage of it to have an outcome that you want, right? And the, the COVID pandemic was the biggest one we've ever seen since World War II. And so that was a training experience to talk about, you know, field training and a battlefield promotion for everybody in HR. All that to say, if I could go back and rename this profession. I would actually rename it to Employee Experience Engineering. And I triple E, right? And I say this in large part, not just because I like alliteration, but because I think that what this group does is about crafting not just the employer brand, but the experience that everyone walks into every day. And I'm starting to see a couple programs out there actually build themselves in engineering programs as, you know, HR programs, right? And that, to me, is a sign that, you know, not a huge movement, but occasionally we're going to end up tripping up with how we engineer the kind of experiences that we want people to
0: have. Hmm. Interesting. That's one I have not heard. Another. So now I've got three. I've got Gashui. I've got whatever the other one was. <laughs> Netflix. I can go get Netflix to employ experience engineering things I'm going to have to think about. I like those. Where can people that maybe are not members of SHRM or, you know, again, are not HR leaders by title or employee experience engineers access some of the research and information that you and your team share?
1: So we actually have a variety of different outlets where we do this. We do it on LinkedIn as well. We have a separate subsite, also known as SHRM Research Institute. And if you reach out to us either at SHRM Research Institute or at knowledge at SHRM.org, we are very responsive and share this information. The other thing that we do is we also practice a little bit in terms of developing and having publicly available events so that people can actually take advantage of our our resource and it's available to the general public.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Well, one of your many things that you've done, you've also, you're an author of several books, uh, a couple of which have really interesting titles, one being The Price of Pettiness. Please share a little bit more about what prompted you to write a book about pettiness and what you learned.
1: <laughs> so, I can be a particularly petty individual, right? And I write what you know, right? <laughs> I've been working on it for years, right? But I'll never forget. One of the things that struck me was I, I witnessed a colleague who was remarkably petty to a coworker, another coworker. And it was one of those things where I thought, you know, that's really not. Worthwhile? Why is it that you're engaging in this? And over the course of time, that act of pettiness actually cost that individual a variety of things because it became part of their lore. They were actually proud of it. And in reality, it actually ended up becoming something that was a debilitating thing in terms of their ability to grow within the organization. And so I thought to myself, you know, what is the actual price of being petty to others? Right? Because you always hear about how it costs nothing to be nice, right? But I wanted to think about how is it that being petty actually hurts people along the way? And so we collected almost 1,700 stories from working Americans and from HR professionals to say, this is where pettiness, an act of pettiness actually hurt an individual along the way, not just in their lives, but also in their their careers. And we were able to call that down to uh, what was about 100 stories in our book. And it was remarkable to see how people actually you know, cost themselves so much. I can think of an example where from the book where somebody who ended up becoming the president of one of the largest health system hospitals in the world actually was discouraged because she was not senior enough and somebody treated her with pettiness, pettiness to the point where they were actually putting dead fish in her car once a month. I mean, talk about stupidness and pettiness, right? And This individual actually ended up leaving and it changed her career for the better. She ended up taking an administrative path as opposed to a nursing path and worked her way up to becoming the first nurse that actually became a healthcare administrator and president of a medical system, as opposed to a surgeon or a doctor. And the person that kept doing that to her was immediately let go and unable to find work, ended up homeless. So it it was just one of those things where I, I thought to myself, holy cow. What is going on here? Just unnecessary, all because the person made one comment in a staff meeting where they were trying to disagree with their opinion.
0: When the In the description of the book, it talks about the depths of pettiness, which sounds like that's a good yeah. example, but also yeah. the remarkable height of creativity that pettiness can inspire. Share something related to that.
1: I mean, how this person got a dead fish in their person's car every month was beyond me. I don't know how they did that. But we've seen things that were just, I'll share an example that came from actually not the book, but from a different kind of data collection. We saw somebody who actually put together an entire police campaign against an individual for what they deemed stealing a Kleenex. So (laughs) there was an individual who actually was sneezing up a storm. And actually went to their coworker's desk. The coworker didn't happen to be there and took a box of Kleenex and used it to, you know, basically clean their nose and, and deal with the sneezing. And another individual set up an elaborate scheme where they actually started to capture a video of this individual and then started to capture, you know, data around when they were doing this and what they were doing and how they were doing it. And before you knew it, they actually turned this data over to HR and demanded that HR do something about it because this person was stealing Kleenex. Mind mind you, the Kleenex were provided by the company. They were not provided (laughs) by the individual. Well, so on and so forth. This person actually then decides, I'm going to go ahead and report you to the police. And so they actually report them to the police and the police come in to investigate Kleenex theft. And all that I can think about is all these people had their time wasted by this person who had remarkable amounts of time and tried to be as creative as possible in investigating something that was not a crime.
0: The sad and funny thing about that story is every HR leader who's listening to that has their own version of the Kleenex theft story that they've had to deal with in their work. Somebody stealing
1: pens or somebody <laughs> stealing paper. And, I mean, and like just, I
0: said, they, these are pens that are bought by the company, but no, they're my pens. <laughs> Well, that's great. Well, the Price of Pettiness book sounds like a great read, but it's also a book that you do not want to be gifted to you, I imagine, right?
1: (laughs) It certainly tells you something if somebody perceives you to be that petty that you deserve the book.
0: (laughs) Well, your second book was released earlier this year, I believe, called Talking Taboo Making the Most of Polarizing Discussions at Work. Well, that is a timely topic. Tell me a little bit more about what prompted that book.
1: So, uh, you know, I was sitting around, and I'll never forget, this was 2020, right before the presidential elections. And we were doing research on why it was that people were having weird conversation about politics in the workplace. And it occurred to me, it wasn't just limited to politics, right? There were a variety of things that people were were talking about in the workplace. And so we had all this data. And what we learned was there were 91% of Americans actually say that they have seen or participated in one of these types of conversations. And Ironically, that same week that we were reviewing all our data, I actually witnessed Two coworkers who had a really difficult conversation talking about policing in America and and what it was relative to social justice and and one is the mother of a police officer, a law enforcement officer, African American, and the mother of law enforcement officer, and the other is an African American lady, and she's also the mother of somebody who's had unnecessary run-ins with police where there wasn't a crime committed, but the police were just being you know more assertive than she deemed necessary, right? And what struck me was that we saw this over and over again, people having these conversations. But these two ladies were able to disagree pretty vehemently and then step back and say, you know what, though? I still like working with you. We're still going to get our job done and we're still going to be great. And it never became an issue for them. So I thought to myself, we've got 91% of Americans who are saying that they've seen these become a problem. And here are these two ladies, for some reason, who got really heated, but were able to back away from it. How is it that that happened? How do I make that recur? for all those 91% of Americans. And, you know, here we are in 2022, and we see people telling, you know, uh, I think about uh, Facebook and how they've outlawed discussion around Dobbs and Roe v. Wade, right? And and those types of things. And what I learned was, you know, you tell somebody not to do it. And whether you like it or not, they're going to go ahead and do it, right? In fact, telling me not to do it means I'm going to go do it. And I said to myself, there's got to be a better way. How do we make these things work? So that people can actually walk away with the benefit? Well, we studied the cognition and what ends up happening was people who engage in these types of conversations engage in being polarized first, then they jump into getting entrenched, meaning I'm going to dig in and I'm going to stick it to my guns. And then eventually, if we don't agree, I'm going to actually weaponize this. But the people who weaponize it don't do four things. They don't think about how people perceive them for engaging in this. They don't think about how other people are affected by engaging in this. They don't think about how the work outcome is changed by what they do. And more importantly, they never retain the kind of information that they need to continue to do their work well. And every time you look at people who've engaged in this, it always impacts three people. The people who are involved, the coworkers around them who witness it, And the people manager, the people manager almost at least 80% of the time will end up having a negative review because they didn't handle it well. So we said to ourselves, how do we get people to think about those four things and think about them all the time? So we gave people a mnemonic, we called it me, we work kind of framework. And the idea was a people manager should be able to go in with four questions and get somebody to step away from that weaponized entrenched way. And really just think about how they can engage in the work and back away from it and see that the group can actually perform well. And so what we've been doing is now trying to capture how it is that people can engage in taboo conversations, but do it in a way that it actually works out better and they can have a little bit of fun.
0: Well, it sounds like, again, a very timely book. We'll definitely link to both of those in the show notes. And, okay. and remember, people, don't buy the price of pettiness and send it to somebody anonymously. <laughs> That's not nice. If you
1: do, though, <laughs> please let me know. I'll go ahead and autograph it first. So that, least that person gets an autograph.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today, Alex. Uh, obviously, you're working in a space with, around a lot of things that are really interesting to me, and I appreciate the work that you and your team do. Where can people connect with you, learn more about you, or the work that you do?
1: Well, you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm Alex Alonzo on LinkedIn. No question about that. I also recommend that you reach out to me. You can find me anywhere, anytime. I'm that guy that's up at 3 a.m. trying to think about these things. So if you want to reach out, alex.alonzo at sherm.org, I'm here for you. And that's Alonzo with an S.
0: We'll spell that right in the show notes as well. <laughs> well, again, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence.